for those of you guys right now watching online and, and from coast to coast across the Fruited Plains, my name is Joe. I'm the pastor here at Lynchburg City Church. If God puts on your heart to give to the church, you can do so by going to lynchburgcitychurch.com. And uh, let's just take a second and pray together. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. And Lord, I pray that uh, you'd help me today as I preach. Um, keep me from error. Help me to say only what you want me to say. Uh, if there's something, Lord, I, I, I shouldn't say, don't, don't let me say it. If there's something I need to say and I haven't planned on it, then I pray that you'd give me the word today. I pray, Lord, um, for our leaders, for the president, um, for the vice president, for the speaker of the house. Uh, give them wisdom. Help them make wise decisions for our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marine, coast guardsmen, space force, those serving at home and abroad. We pray for their safety. We pray for their protection. We pray for their salvation. And for the persecuted church, Leah Sherabu, Pastor Yusuf, um, Pastor Wang, Pastor John, imprisoned in China. For the Christians, Lord, in North Korea and in Afghanistan, South Sudan, Eritrea, Somalia. I mean, some of these like really, really hard places to be a Christian. God, help them. And all the other Christians, we don't even know their names. Help them, Lord. As the author of Hebrews instructs us to remember those who are in chains, as if in chains with them, God, help them. Please, Jesus, help them. And I pray you'd help us today. I pray you'd free us from distraction. I pray you'd keep, uh, I know we've got a lot of people traveling, Lord, um, back today. Uh, keep them safe as they travel. And just help us to hear from you this afternoon. We love you. We need you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So uh, we, are, we are in the book of, the, of Psalms. I, I preached uh, a psalm last week. Um, I'm preaching another psalm this week. I, I really like the psalms. I didn't always like the psalms. I thought they were boring and lame and just a bunch of poetry, stuff like that. And then I took a class in, in seminary uh, on the psalms by Dr. Gary Yates, uh, arguably the, the best professor that they have over there at the School of Divinity. And uh, so this, this sermon today is actually based off of a paper that I wrote for a class. I'm sure a lot of pastors do that. They find a paper and then they just whittle it into a sermon. Um, it's a sermon I don't think I've preached for probably two years here, but it's uh, one that I, I really like. It's Psalm 141 specifically. It's an individual lament. That means grief or, or sorrow, if you didn't know. Um, and it was a psalm that was associated with the evening sacrifices that took place at the temple. Uh, the types, these types, excuse me, I like Psalm 141, would be prayers offered to God in times of distress, where the individual, or even like the community, would plead with God for his deliverance. And like many lament psalms, there's a, a significant focus by the psalmist on God, his enemies, and himself. And if you observe closely, you're going to notice this, the structure, how Psalm 141 is laid out. It begins with this introductory cry, an invocation to God, followed by the lament. That's the, going to be the actual description. Then there's going to be a confession of trust, an imprecation, of which the theme of compromise clearly emerges. That's like the whole sermon in one word, compromise, hashtag compromise, I suppose. So, so more specifically, uh, this prayer is a prayer for God to protect the faithful person against all insincerity and compromise 
amid such dangers. So there's a little introductory, introductory remarks right there. Let's jump right into Psalm 141, verse 1. It says, The Psalm of David, O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. I probably didn't read that correctly. It's probably more like, O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. There's a, certainly, I think, a tone of urgency in the psalmist. Quickly, God. That's the imperative. And uh, evidently, it's totally fine to urge God to hurry up because that's exactly what the psalmist is doing right now. He's demanding that God pay attention to him right now. Though, in the original language, it probably comes off a little bit more polite than our English grammar may convey along the lines of a courteous, I call to you. The psalmist wants Yahweh to pay attention right now. Right now. Something's going on. Not told what's going on, but something's happening. Verse 2. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Hold on, did we get the right verse there? We do. Which is somewhat odd. Because as quickly as the urgent tone in verse 1 arrives, it leaves. We get to verse 2 and it seems almost as if whatever issues have been going on in verse 1, they've been forgotten about. The the transition is super abrupt between the emotions of verse 1 and verse 2. Like one second, the psalmist is in crisis mode, and the next he's like, hey guys, anyone want to go play Putt-Putt Friday? So like, like Like that's how it feels to me, like that's how it feels to me too. And the reader is left wondering if there even was an issue in verse 1. Because now that we're in verse 2, the psalmist is like making these references to the evening sacrifices. It's like a switch went off. But keep in mind, when the psalmist wrote this, it's entirely possible that days, weeks, even months have transpired between the start and the conclusion of this psalm. So, here's what's going on right now in verse 2 as it relates to the evening sacrifices. In the, in the narrow sense, the evening sacrifices, the evening offerings, they, they would have been a grain offering. In, in a broader sense, well, this could have certainly included animal sacrifices, potentially ones that were made each evening. This, after all, is an agricultural society, so this is as good as cash. It's as good as swiping your card. Uh, it's a form of really sacrificial giving. But at the start of verse 2, he's praying. Did you catch that? Let my prayers... Be counted as incense, he says. You say, well, what would that mean? Like, how, how does that work? And in reality, it would be the actual smoke from the sacrifices being made. The smoke is pictured as if it's going up to God and carrying with it this very pleasing aroma to God. But then, if you notice also, at the start of verse 2, he says, let my prayers be counted as incense. As incense. And I should clarify, lest we misunderstand what the psalmist is saying here. And that's because there's no word for with. And one of the problems we run into English is that this may give us kind of a false impression. He's not saying, instead of giving, I'm just going to pray. Instead of making a sacrifice, 
I'm just going to pray. He's not saying that. And that's because prayers would never be a substitute for offerings unless offerings were impossible for some reason. And that's the point. Our prayers are never a substitute for other aspects of worship or obedience to God, like giving here in the context, or like fellowship or participation or serving or, or using our gifts. All of these things that we should be doing. And yet, I think we also have to remember that verse 2 follows verse 1. And verse 1 hinted at a whole lot of chaos happening. And the reason this is so important is because it hasn't stopped. It's presumably still ongoing. And despite this happening in his life, the psalmist is still participating with the people of God to worship God. One might even say here in verse 2 that he just went to a church service. He just went to a, a gathering of the local church. I think that's the main point in verse 2. Martin Luther, he, he would say it probably like this. I try to pray an hour a day. Hour a day. That's what I try to do. And then when life gets really busy and like really hectic and stuff happens on those days, I try to pray two or three hours a day. Well, if that doesn't sound right to some of us, if, if that statement maybe defies your logical understanding, that's because for many of us, when life gets crazy, our spiritual practices are the first thing that goes. Money gets tight, first thing that goes is giving. Time gets tight, the first thing that goes is local church gatherings. This is why when we read verse 2, it sounds disruptive in the natural flow of verse 1, and it makes us kind of second guess if life really was as urgent as he made it sound in verse 1. Because for most of us, if we find ourselves in a tough situation, we've got this terrible habit of hitting the pause button and calling time out on spiritual practices. We have a terrible habit of hitting the pause button. Hitting the pause button, calling time out on things that can actually help us, can help us the most. Like when we find ourselves crying out to God, like in those moments, like so many Christians have a terrible habit to hit the pause button on all things spiritual. I remember uh, John Piper tells a story of a woman whose husband had died. Husband died, I think, on a Saturday. And the very next day on a Sunday, he goes up to preach. And he's there. And the woman shows up. Her husband just died the day before. Woman shows up. He, he goes up to preach. He sees her kind of up in the balcony in her normal spot. And he remembers thinking in that moment, like, what are you doing here? Your, your husband just died yesterday, right? Like, what's wrong with you? And of course, after the service, he talks to her. And he asks her, what, what are you doing here? And she explained, she said, Pastor John, this is exactly where I needed to be today, like more than Anything else, I needed to hear the word of God proclaimed very powerfully in my very fragile state. Like, she needed to hear about the greatness of God that Sunday probably more than ever before. And for some of you right now, this is exactly the same for you as well. You need to hear proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
And yet for most of us, when we find ourselves in really tough moments, we just hit the pause button. We hit the pause button. With the pause button, like all things spiritual. And no, I'm not saying like the day after your husband dies that you have to go to church. I'm not saying that, right? But as a rule of thumb, that's what we usually do. We hit the pause button on, on all these things God's given to us as a means of grace. As a means to help us really in those really dark, difficult moments of life. And so verse 2, even though life is crazy, he still makes time to pray and worship and give offerings to God. I think it's certainly worth remembering at this point when it comes to spiritual practices or let's say specifically to prayer, right? I love the, the Piper quote. If prayer ever seems to you like a distraction from productivity, oh, I'm too busy. I got school, I got job, I got work, I got relationship. I just don't have time to spend time with the Lord today. Like if prayer ever seems to you like a distraction from productivity, remember God can do more in you praying for five seconds than you can all on your own five hours in a day. It should be the most productive thing you do all day long. That's what the psalmist, I think, realizes that's why it seems so abrupt going from verse 1 to 2. Like, was there really an issue in verse 1? Because it seems like he's still doing all the normal spiritual practices he should be doing. No, he, he is. It seems odd to us because that's not normally how we live our lives. And so verse 3, he says, he prays, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. And I don't know if anyone has this problem, but the psalmist acknowledges that our mouths are major means of wrongdoing. Like, what we say holds the potential to get us into some trouble. And as someone who has said a lot of dumb things in my life, I can testify to this truth. And, and yet, I think the concern for the psalmist goes beyond simply speaking without thinking, but, but rather he's concerned with using his speech in a very dark and deceptive sort of way. This is what he's asking for, that God would keep him from this type of speech. Why does he ask for that? I think he asks for that because there, there's a real temptation for him to use his speech in a way that just doesn't honor God. To, to use his speech in such a way that he becomes like the people who he's asking protection from in verse 1. Uh, to put it a different way, like we need protection from other people's attacks. But we also need protection from other people's influence. In other words, he says, I don't want to be like them, God. As verse 4 explains, don't let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity. They work, they literally, like what they do for their nine to five job, they, they work sin. And let me not eat of their delicacies. He faces this external pressure to join with other people in the way that they're apparently using their speech to further their scheming. And so he's asking God and to protect himself, to, to guard himself from them as he faces this temptation. And, and as he faces this temptation, what, what does he do? He prays. He prays that God would act. Like when he is tempted, when he feels pressure to cave and give in, he prays. He pleads with Yahweh to act like a friend who can persuade him to act in a way that he wouldn't otherwise act in. 
Did you catch that? Some weighty theology right there. Is the psalmist responsible for his actions? And we would say, yes, the psalmist is responsible for his actions. And yet he prays that God would persuade him to act in a way that he should act. He prays to God that he won't sin. And some might say, well, if God doesn't answer his prayer, I guess it's not his fault if, if he sinned. But we know that we're responsible for our actions. So how does that work? Is there inconsistency? No, I don't think so at all. He prays that God would help him to act the right way. And yet we know the psalmist still needs to be held accountable for his actions. And if you think that's kind of hard to understand, I mean, just look at the Trinity, for example. Is God one or three? What's the correct answer? That's the correct answer. You guys have had that question before, I think. So so while there is this tension, there's no contradiction here. And that's because if God could not do the thing that he's asking him to do in verse 4, I don't think he'd be praying like this in the first place. See, the truth is, no one can be sure of maintaining today's commitment tomorrow. Nobody. You had a good day with the Lord? Great. Don't think that you can on your own strength go and repeat it tomorrow. Like, this is why we need God. We, we need God to exercise decisive influence over us. And that's because at any given time in our lives, someone is exercising influence over us. It's true. You so, say, what, what do you do as a pastor? I try to exercise influence over everybody in here. I don't know if you should do that. That's, that's like, then what am I doing, right? Like, like that's what pastors do. Remember when, I think it was Carl Lentz came to speak at Liberty. Um, this was back when he was still the pastor at Hillsong, NYC. Um, he had been on The View the previous week. And he just said, like, no, it's not my job to tell people what they should or shouldn't think or believe. And I'm just like, well, then whose job is it to do that? Right? The pastors are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. To tell the story of the scriptures. So, yeah, I'm trying to exercise influence every single time I come up here. Because I'm like, well, if I believe this is true, I'm going to do my very best to persuade each and every one of you to believe it as well. Especially for any non-Christians in here. To believe, like, the gospel, life, death, burial, resurrection. I'm going to do that all day long. I was doing that last week, like, when my sister and brother-in-law were here. Like, they're not Christians. The stakes are too high. So, So, yes... Uh, at any given time in our lives, uh, someone is exercising influence over us. It's either God or his agents or someone else, right? It's either God or Netflix. I mean, there, there are individuals pressuring the psalmist to do evil and wicked things, trying to influence him to compromise. And notice the phrase in verse 4, let me not eat of their delicacies. No, we're not told what the delicacies are. Maybe it's sexually related. Maybe it has to do with money or relationships or toys. Like, we don't know for sure. But we do know that there are people who are dangling these things, these delicacies right in front of him. And while he doesn't say what they are, they are very real. And a part of him wants them. A part of him wants these things. He's like, God, don't let me go down this road. Don't let me compromise myself. That's... That's his prayer. And apparently God can do that for him. In other words, if God can harden the heart of Pharaoh, (laughs) then perhaps God can also turn his heart 
toward the Lord and toward righteousness. That's why he prays the way he does in verses 3 and, and 4. But unfortunately for many people, when it comes to this sort of temptation being offered to them, they usually just end up compromising. They don't battle against the temptation. And, and if they do battle at all, it's usually such a very poor, embarrassing battle. They're like, God... Help me not to get in trouble tonight as I attend and participate in this party that I really have no business going to at all, right? Or, or like my one, my one friend, we'll call him Tony, because it happens to be his name. You guys don't know Tony, that's why I can say it. He literally would tell me when I'd see him during like army training, he'd be like, yeah, I was praying, that, I, I was like, I was just praying a whole lot. I was like, God, help me not to, to get any diseases as I have all these sexual relationships with all these different women. I kid you not, that's what he told me. We fight in this stupid, passive way. And so the psalmist, he prays, but as we're also about to see, he takes action. He takes action. Look at verse 5. Let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. Here's what's going on here. The psalmist is making a commitment to not putting himself in compromising situations in which he might act in a way that is sinful and he's also committing himself to having people in his life to help him. And that's what he means by that phrase, let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. What he's saying is, I need to have people in my life who are not going to tell me what I want to hear, but what I need to hear. Who are going to tell me what I need to hear when it comes to my relationships, when it comes to my spiritual walk, when it comes to really just anything. This is why Christian friendships are so important. For this very reason that the church exists, to have these type of friendships so that we might join with the author of Hebrews in saying, exhort one another every day. You guys know the verse, right? Or as Solomon would say, better are wounds from a friend than kisses from an enemy. And so the psalmist makes a commitment to having the sort of people in his life who are willing to tell him hard truths of what he needs to hear. Let a righteous man strike me. He's like, smack me if I need to get smacked. And then he says, let my head not refuse it. You say, well, why, why might he say... Let not my head refuse it. And I think the answer is because it's uncomfortable. Like, I, I can't think of anybody, I don't know anyone personally who says, I like to get smacked in the head by people, literally or figuratively. I don't know anyone who likes that because it's unpleasant. We don't like how it feels. And as a result, we have a tendency to refuse these friendships or run from these types of relationships or pretend that we have accountability? Like the, the famous Babylon Bee article. Uh, after a long search for perfect accountability partner, man chooses himself. And then we wonder why we are lured into these dangerous traps. Like a president who withdraws from Afghanistan, his military, with no apparent plan, ignoring wisdom and common sense, only to be made a fool in front of the world. And so we, too, act just as stupidly and under, under, underestimate the enemy that we're up against. But thankfully for the psalmist, 
He has the wisdom to see the benefit, uncomfortable as it might be, to have the sort of friends in his life that he can count on to help him in moments in which he's being pulled into sin and into foolishness. And oh, by the way, this is not always something that is comfortable, but it is always something that's beneficial. As the author of Hebrews would remind us in Hebrews 12:11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's not always something that's comfortable, but it is always something that's beneficial. And so at the end of verse 5 and the end of verse 6, we get a glimpse of an imprecation, an imprecatory prayer. He closes by praying against the evil deeds of the wicked and then continues by saying, when their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words for they are pleasant. So into verse 5, verse 6, now we're into this imprecation, this prayer against the wicked, asking for their demise. And then it includes this graphic imagery of how the psalmist depicts their termination who and that others might eventually learn from the downfall of their judges and leaders. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. And in case you think that these are remote instances, like there's Psalms 137.9, Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Uh, a New Testament example would be like Galatians 1.8, Anyone who preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed just to name a few. And so the question that I often get is, can, can we pray imprecatory prayers? My short answer is, yeah, you can pray imprecatory prayers, but you, you can't pray them just because someone messes up your order at like a fast food restaurant. That's not a good reason to pray imprecatory prayer. Like, you can pray them, but you, you can't pray them just because like the girl you like shot you down. Like, can't pray them against her. Um... So you say, well, what, <coughs> what sort of situation may lead us to pray imprecations? Well, first, a couple things. A couple things you need to understand right now. Um, these prayers are righteous prayers in, in spite of the violent sentiment that's being expressed. Let's just start there. In addition, I'd also add, the psalmist is appealing to God's justice and God's desire for justice when he prays imprecations. Number two. The psalmist hates what God hates. His heart and his mind are in line with God's. And, and the only way that's possible is to know what God's word says. Okay? Like, he hates what God hates. And just because you hate dumb drivers on the roads, that doesn't give you an excuse to pray imprecatory prayers against them. Just want to clear the deck right there. Like, third, the, the psalmist is responding in anger during an emotionally heightened situation and her circumstances. Fourth, the concept of holy war within the Old Testament context, it was clear justification regarding Israel's enemies. And all of this can and should be viewed, more importantly, through the cultural context of the ancient Near East. And if someone remembers to ask the question, small group, you can ask me, like, are there examples in your life where you've prayed imprecatory prayers? And I'll answer that. We can go talk about that more. But uh, finally, the, the psalmist is praying these imprecations. He's appealing to God's help. That's how this whole thing got kicked off in verse 1. And, and in addition to these specific reasons why one can view imprecatory prayers as righteous, um, remember we have examples of Jesus, Paul, and other characters in the New Testament who, who prayed such prayers. 
But the biggest difference, because I gave you a whole bunch, the biggest difference between the Old and New Testament in regards to imprecatory prayers is that in the Old Testament, they're prayed against a specific enemy or hostile nation, where in the New Testament, the enemy typically is a spiritual enemy, like in Ephesians 6 or Colossians 1. And so uh, verse 7, it says, As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. Verse 7 is the actual lament. The crisis expressed in verse 1, it now comes full circle. It's now explained to us. The psalmist views his situation as, as very bleak. He believes it's only a matter of time before he dies. And the imagery in verse 7, it's that of a farmer. He's preparing the ground for agricultural purposes. He's, he's plowing the ground. He's breaking up the soil uh, for the purpose of, of scattering seed, right? He's going out, he's scattering seed. Uh, but in this case, the seed is replaced with this very chilling picture of human remains. Specifically, chopped up pieces of the psalmist body that are going into the ground. And that's because the psalmist's enemies, they're not just content with killing the psalmist. That's not enough for them. They want to mutilate him. It's not, it's not good enough just to kill the psalmist. They want to mutilate his body. That's the imagery here. Instead of sowing the seed, the farmer is sowing chopped up. Oh, there's a finger, there's a toe, there's an ear. Just It's mutilation. It's incredibly graphic. That's the reason he cries out in verse 1. But it's not just him that they're after. They're also after anyone like him. Notice in verse 7. So shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. Is anyone like him? It's a community. So shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. And, and the big question I get a lot is, well, what exactly is Sheol? King James Version of the Bible translates it, it's hell which is, is very problematic because we're told both righteous and the wicked go to hell if we're following the KJV translation. Um, the NIV translates Sheol, the grave. Um, the ESV translates Sheol, Sheol. That's my favorite. Um, so you're like, okay, well, what is that then? Uh, in short, this is the place that you go when you die. Righteous, wicked, both go to Sheol, the distinction, as Dr. Yates would remind us almost every class, the distinction is that the wicked go there before their time. That's the distinction. In addition, we have some New Testament examples like the story of the rich man Lazarus where it seems to be almost two different compartments in Sheol uh, where um, the rich man is able to communicate with Lazarus. Remember he says, hey, go and tell my brothers. And he's like, listen, if they didn't listen to Moses, they're not going to listen to anybody. But that's the picture here. Their bones are being scattered at the mouth of Sheol. And the imagery, think about that, mouth of Sheol, mouth, mouth. The imagery is very intentional. See, he, he pictures a Sheol as having this mouth, this threat against the community of God, like literally being swallowed up by death itself. What he's doing is he's borrowing from Canaanite mythology right here. See, in Canaanite mythology, mot, that's M-O-T, 
was the god of death and the underworld, the chief adversary of Baal, the god of fertility. Uh, Mott was described as having these monstrous jaws, uh, swallowing his victims whole. His mouth was described as stretching from the earth below to the heavens above, his tongue stretching out to the stars. This is a life and death situation that the psalmist finds himself in. But, but why do his enemies want him dead, you ask? I think the, the possibility, the distinct possibility of why they want him dead is because he hasn't compromised. He hasn't given in to their demands. You see, if, if you're a Christian, you're viewed as an extremist. And that really hasn't changed throughout the centuries. You're like, I want to be, be heterosexual. Well, you, you don't get a month to celebrate that, right? I want to uh, get married. Well, that's a good desire to have. No one's going to applaud you for that desire. I, I want to have children. I want to raise them to be boys and, and girls. Good luck with that, because you're in direct opposition to the public school system and the federal government. I want to read the Bible, because I believe it's true. I believe it's God's word. Now you're one of the greatest threats to our democracy. The world looks down on you, because you refuse to go along and agree with them. See, for the psalmist, his enemies want him dead, presumably because he won't compromise and join in with them. That's the reason. But he says, my eyes are toward you, O God. He keeps his eyes on God. My Lord, <coughs> in you I seek refuge, leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me, and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. The psalmist prays that his enemies are going to fall in the very traps that they have set. And I think this raises the question is, well, why is it that we compromise in the first place? And I think the answer is because we want to. The reason people compromise is usually to accommodate their own desires. So, like, what, what do I do in a situation like this? What do I do in a situation where I'm being pressured, right? Pressured to compromise. Well, you, you fight. That's what you do. You're like, how? Like the psalmist. How does he do this? Back in verse 4. Don't let my heart incline to any evil. That's a good prayer to pray. Don't let my heart go there, God. Or I love Psalm 86, 11. Unite my heart to fear your name. Why does he pray that? Because his heart is going this way and this way and this way and this way. It's going all over the place. I mean, I grew up in church, and normally I was just told, don't, don't sin. Sin's bad, don't sin. Not like an untrue statement. I didn't always find it to be the best advice or the most helpful. I think better advice would be from the psalmist. He prays. He exercises wisdom to not put himself in situations in which he will inevitably compromise. And then in verse 8 he says, my eyes are toward you. My eyes are toward you. Why? Because there's nobody else that can help him. And some might say, well, Joe, I have enough willpower. I have enough self-control. Maybe, probably not. Usually that's just pride and arrogance. It's usually a cover for pride and arrogance. Like, if you want to fight compromise, then you need to do what the psalmist is doing in verse 8. You need to keep your eyes on Jesus and see Jesus as better. See Jesus as more desirable than the things that are tempting you away from him. My eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. See, the truth is, when you want to sin, you are very hesitant to affirm truths that contradict that sin. Like, like when you want to sin, you're not like, 
oh, I really want to have sex with this girl. What's a good Bible verse? Oh, there she. I'll be right there, baby. Uh, what's a good verse that talks about not doing this? No one thinks that way. Like, no one thinks that way. Like, I do. No, you don't. You're just lying. That's another issue you got to worry about. When we want to sin, we are very hesitant to affirm truths in the moment that contradict the thing we want to do. And this is where the righteous man comes into play in verse 5. Let a righteous man strike me. Remember where he said that back in verse 5? See, everyone wants to be the righteous man. No one wants to have him in their life. But the benefit of having the righteous man in our life is to hear him or her say true things that are going to help us. Not the things maybe we want to hear, the things we need to hear. Because when it comes to compromise, we, we usually have a tendency to, to justify things. We, we like to move the lines. Okay? I like to, like to move the goalpost. Um, and we'll say things like, well, it's not technically breaking the rules. It's just kind of like bending the rules. And, and what we're doing is we're just downplaying the nature of the compromise. See, when it comes to sin, here's the truth I think we, we should remember. Uh, sin is more than breaking rules. It's picking teams. So what team do you want to pick? you want to pick Satan's team or Jesus' team? We don't, we don't like to acknowledge this because it's a little too convicting. Those are the only two options? Yeah. Uh, you want to go and you want to you sign up for Satan's team or Jesus' team? See, every one of us needs help from God and from the verse 5 righteous man or the person in our lives because every one of us is at risk. Okay, whether it's personal sin or temptation, like we don't know, remember what the delicacies were, or if it's just external pressure to conform with the rest of society. I mean, especially in this LGBTQIABCDEFG like generation we live in, which is like almost every week we hear another story that likens us and almost puts us in that position that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in, where they're told, bow down or face the consequences. And oh, by the way, I absolutely love and am so encouraged by what the psalmist doesn't do in this story. He doesn't call time out. He doesn't hit the pause button. Like, he, he, he doesn't do that. He doesn't hit the pause button, whether it's with his money or his time or his worship, because he's like, those are the most valuable things. Going back to verse 2. Like what Luther said, I try to pray an hour a day. Life gets really busy, I try to pray two hours on those days. Because he realizes those are the most important things. Like at the heart of compromise is the belief that Christ is somehow not enough. Which inevitably leads us to hitting the pause button on the things that God has given to help us in our time of need. Listen, our hearts are prone to wander. We know it. They are. My heart's prone to wander. Your heart's prone to wander. Your heart's prone to wander. Our hearts are prone to wander. My prayer for us today is that we would remember the psalmist. We would remember how he fights the war on compromise and that God would keep us until the very end, that God would give us the courage to not compromise, to hold our ground in the wake of those who hate us and who want to do us harm. So as the team comes, I want to pray for us. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us to see you as better and greater and more desirable than anything else this world could offer or try to seduce us with or buy. Help us to keep our eyes on you. Forgive us, Lord, for the times this, this week, today, I don't know when, Lord, that we, we've taken our eyes off of you. 
where we've started to compromise a few inches or a few feet. Help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us to have and to be good friends to people, Lord. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let my head not refuse it. We need your help, Jesus. It's so easy to slip away in our faith, to conform to the pressures around us. Please help me. Please help all of us. And Lord Jesus, I pray you'd come soon and take us home. We pray this in your name. Amen.